Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. My name is Daniel Alemann. And I'm Valentina Mann. And today we're talking to Dr. Ben Slingo. Ben Slingo is a junior research fellow at Clare College, Cambridge. He works on the history of early modern political thought and is currently preparing a book manuscript on theories of power in later scholastic thought. And we're happy that he's here with us today. Thank you very much, Ben. Hello. So, as always on this podcast, let us start with a question about your intellectual biography. When and how did you first come to the study of the history of political thought? Well, I was an undergraduate here in Cambridge, and in my first and second years, I uh, took a course with Magnus Ryan, who was my director of studies, and Annabel Brett, who later became my doctoral supervisor, called uh, Nature and the City in Medieval Political Thought. And I just found that uh, hugely stimulating and you had to produce a, uh, an essay at the end of it, about 6,000 words, and mine was on uh, the Franciscan poverty controversy in the 14th century. And I suppose I, just, I was exhilarated by how, how seriously these medieval intellectuals who were arguing about ultimately quite sort of concrete and indeed financial issues took the deeper conceptual philosophical issues that they ended up arguing about. And then after that, I studied all the various political thought papers as an undergraduate, did my MPhil in Cambridge, and then my PhD too. So was it always clear for you that you'd like to pursue an academic career? Or did you have another plan in mind when you first came to university? And was there perhaps a particular moment during your studies when you realized that this might be something for you? Well, I suppose the first thing I should say is that I don't come from an academic family or background in any way. My parents did go to university, but neither of them ever considered becoming academics. I don't have any other relatives or close family friends who were academics. Uh, but on the other hand, I did from quite a young age um, very much like the idea of doing so myself. But I suppose over time, uh, my reasons changed quite a lot. I think when I was very young, I had a slightly sort of idealized version of what it might be like. But then once I arrived at Cambridge and was sort of taught and sort of lived around people who were engaged in academic work, it seemed like a very um, attractive idea. And I suppose since then, yes, I, um, I haven't really seriously considered any alternatives. Although I suppose everyone, uh, as they sort of move through life and becomes aware that their options are in certain ways shrinking by means of decisions they make, I sort of felt anxious about it. But no, I've always been quite sort of, sort of firmly convinced it's the right thing to do. Your research revolves around the so-called Second Scholastic, Dominican and Jesuit university theologians of the 16th and 17th centuries. Can you briefly introduce us to the universe of the scholastics? What were these theologians thinking, lecturing, and writing about? What were the religious and social debates in which they were involved? And how come we study them as theorists of politics today? Uh, well, the first thing I should say perhaps is chronological in that uh, my work covers the 16th and early 17th centuries, which is when this later scholastic um, movement was at its most vibrant. I suppose the second thing I should say is that these authors were self-consciously reviving the thought of 
Thomas Aquinas, and many of their works take the form of commentaries on his work. So the exercise they take themselves to be engaged in is um, sort of using Thomas's work to teach their students and to illuminate political issues in their own time, but also to uh, clarify what Thomas was saying and to resolve apparent tensions in the body of thought they've inherited, or even in certain ways to update it or move beyond it. They have a variety of interests in doing this, which go well beyond politics. So Louis de Molina, for example, a Jesuit theologian in the late 16th century whom I work on, was most controversial for his, his theology of uh, free will and grace. Or, for example, Francisco Suarez is maybe best known for his metaphysics, which are often discussed nowadays as in the context of Descartes' later work. So it's not just a matter of politics. However, uh, one of the things that makes this later moment in scholastic theology distinctive versus what was going on in the Middle Ages is a, a new concentration on issues in moral and political philosophy. Francisco de Vittorio, who is probably the most important figure in the early 16th century in commenting on and sort of teaching Thomas's theology, very much had that emphasis and his uh, successors did too. As to which um, political issues they were addressing, I think they were interested in the the balance of power or the relations of power within a state or commonwealth. So how far the prince had free reign to rule, how far his subjects might have the right to constrain him. But they were also interested in the relationships between political communities. So they're often regarded as pioneering figures in the development of international law. They're also interested um, not just in power and in rule and in the community, but in the experience of subjects under that power. So what makes uh, a human being free and how that is linked with what then makes a citizen or a political subject free or unfree. And so these are all quite sort of abstract issues which they did in fact address in very philosophically rigorous and sophisticated terms in academic texts. But they also um, applied their thought in a series of quite momentous political controversies in Europe and beyond Europe in the 16th, early 17th century. So uh, the debate about the relative power of the Pope and the Council in the Church, which sort of reached its climax before the Reformation, then also in the legitimacy or otherwise of the Spanish conquest of the New World, and then um, towards the end of the 16th and then the early 17th century, the extent to which the Church, and in particular the Pope, could intervene in the secular realm, whether in Catholic countries or even more fraught in Protestant countries where the church and its theologians uh, regarded the sort of incumbent rulers as heretics. So, and what's interesting, I suppose, as well, is how um, those philosophical reflections in academic texts and the more polemical ones uh, as part of these controversies are extraordinarily close. And there's a really interesting symbiosis between um, the polemical arguments these scholastics were making and their, their philosophy in a stricter sense. At the heart of your research is the concept of political power, potestas politica. So first of all, the question is, of course, what is political power for the scholastics? And what are the implications for our understanding of the scholastics if we focus on political power? What I've particularly been trying to do is ask what they think power fundamentally is. Uh, what does it mean 
what's the experience of being subjected to political power? What sort of agent do you need to be to hold political power? How does it relate to the particular institutions of government? Is it a horizontal relationship of solidarity where a group of people collaborate with each other with an end in mind? Or is it necessarily something which involves uh, the subordination of inferiors to superiors and some sort of vertical power relationship? Does uh, being under political power necessarily infringe your freedom? Is it something which doesn't really affect your freedom at all? Or is participation in a political community perhaps a quite an active, self-governing kind, an indispensable component of being free? And it's interesting that when one asks these questions of these scholastics, they turn out to be hugely rewarding, I think, uh, not because they collectively have a single account which gives a set of unitary answers to all these questions, but because it's exactly this issue about what political power is in the senses I've just outlined that is a major focus of disagreement among them. And that disagreement tends to be articulated by way of a number of different what we might call conceptual vocabularies or more mundanely just particular words which they give different definitions to or which they argue about the appropriateness of. And the most generic word all the scholastics use for power, including political power, is potestas, which can mean a whole commodious range of things, including just a sort of communal faculty for getting on with the business of political survival. So someone like Jacques Almain, writing in the early 16th century, describes a political community as having a communal power of self-preservation, which is a potestas, and which is analogous to the right any individual has, uh, as they would later have in Thomas Hobbes, to preserve or defend themselves. Another word some of the scholastics insist on using, including Almain's main critic, Cardinal Cayetan, is principatus, which on the one hand implies some element of rule or government and so implicitly means that in order for it to be properly exercised there have to be certain institutions to hold it. Simply a, a body politic without considered apart from its government wouldn't really be able to have principatus, for instance, at least on a permanent basis. And also principatus says, I suppose the the etymology of the word even suggests in English, um, does imply a sort of downward exercise of power. Uh, so you would really have a subject if you had principatus and you would be a, a ruler. Although, of course, one option which some of the scholastics do explore is that the people as a whole can rule and be ruled at the same time. So principatus doesn't necessarily imply an inegalitarian political structure. It just means that uh, the question of being a subject or being a ruler is always in play. And perhaps the most interesting uh, term of all, which some of them think is applicable to politics sub not, and which they disagree about the precise implications of, is dominium. And dominium is a word which lots of theorists, including the scholastics, use to refer to property. So if you own something, you are its dominus. However, it can also be used to describe rulership or authority over another person. And most Awkwardly, but interestingly of all, it tends best to describe the situation where those two conditions overlap. So if you rule someone else, but also in some sense 
they belong to you or that your authority over them is for your own, the ruler's purposes, then that makes you a dominus, makes you dominant, makes you dominating in the strongest sense of all. So the, the paradigmatic relationship of dominium is between a dominus, a master, and a servus, a slave. So if you characterize political power in terms of dominium, then that means that in some sense it might have some connection, however remote or conditional or analogous, with uh, enslavement. And so that is another issue the scholastics end up debating. Some of them say that, well, if dominium is a relationship with a connection to slavery, then we shouldn't think of political power in terms of dominium at all. Some of them say that some dominium is like slavery, but some completely isn't. And so long as you're being governed in your own interests or to your own ends, uh, you remain free and you're not a slave at all. And some of them, perhaps most remarkably, say that, yes, a lot of political power is dominium, and does infringe your freedom, and is in some sense analogous with slavery. And then they say either, well, that's something we're just going to have to put up with, especially after the fall in the sort of sin-ridden world we live in, or, more interestingly still, they say, well, if you want to avoid that condition, you have to make sure that there isn't a situation in which there are rulers and subjects who are separate entities. You need a situation in which everyone is both a ruler and a subject, which is to say some kind of and they are willing to use this word, democratic regime. And so that's, in a sense, the most startling uh, scholastic conclusion which Cardinal Cayetan arrives at, and that Francisco Suarez, at least, contemplates as a possibility. But it's one of several competing strands of scholastic thought which I've been trying to untangle or set alongside each other. So this is related to what you've just said. You're currently preparing a book manuscript under the tentative title Scholastic Republicanism. And that's quite striking because we usually associate the notion of Republican liberty with Italian Renaissance thinkers such as Leonardo Bruni or with English political theorists like James Harrington, rather than with the defenders of royal and papal power. So how is it possible to speak of the notion of Scholastic Republicanism Obviously, it's, it seems straightforward to assume that um, Republican theorists are likely to be on the opposite side of political debates from and have very little to do with theoretically uh, apologists for absolute monarchical rule. So if you're a Republican theorist in the early modern period, you might be assumed to be someone who believes in constitutional limits on royal government or even more so someone who believes in some sort of popular sovereignty. Now, my argument, I hope, in my book will be that we can think of the scholastics as Republican theorists, and that when we do so, a lot of these assumptions are shaken up. So some of the scholastic authors, in particular, as I said, Cayetan and Suarez, think that subjects' freedom is very importantly at stake when we experience political life. Others, uh, like Aquinas lost the time, or someone like Sheikh Almain, uh, disagree. But there is a strand of scholastic thought uh, which says that Subjects can either be free or unfree, and that this is an important issue in politics. Uh, these authors also think that the means by which subjects can guarantee their freedom is by controlling the institutions of government, by having principatus, to use the word I introduced earlier, themselves, uh, by um, ultimately by operating a democratic government, in that that's the only scenario in which all the subjects are also rulers. Um, and they also, by uh, resorting to the term dominium, characterize all of this in terms of domination. So Suarez and Cayetan, in their different ways, 
say that if you have a monarch, then that monarch will have dominion over you as a subject, and that this will mean you are less free than you would be either in some notional state outside politics or under the sort of democratic self-governing regime you could perhaps otherwise have. And they argue for all of this in terms which are entirely abstract, which are based on considerations of right, which are generalizable to all political societies which have their origins in a consideration of natural morality, rather than in politics as some sort of entirely distinctive enterprise apart from morality, uh, and which are articulated in a language which is austerely philosophical rather than in any sense literary or rhetorical. So they don't fit the republican norm in all sorts of ways. And the most interesting thing, perhaps, and the most provocative, is that Cayetan and Suarez and those who think like them do not, as it were, advocate for this sort of free, democratic, self-governing, non-dominated regime. They say that it's an option, but they, in fact, prefer a form of absolute monarchy whereby there is in Cayetan's case, a pope, in Suarez's case, a king who has dominion over their subjects. So they sort of open up a theoretical space for republicanism without advocating it as such. So that's what I mean by scholastic republicanism. And that's what I sort of develop more cogently, I hope, in my book. Your focus on political power very much shifts our attention away from the end or end product of politics towards its origins. Does this mean that you are deliberately going beyond the classic Cambridge focus on the state? Or is this rather a story that proposes a new way to think about the foundations of the modern state? Well, I suppose there are several things I would say to that. Firstly, about the relationship between the end product of politics, as you call it, and the origins. I think there is obviously a diachronic element to what the scholastics are saying. For a lot of them, uh, there's a transition from one form of politics to another. In particular, it's quite a commonplace idea for them that originally the people uh, has power. By default, they are the recipients of it, the, the first holders of it. But for many of the classics, that's not a sustainable situation since the people in and of itself isn't an agent which can form a government without some sort of further step. And that step often involves the appointment of uh, a single person or a smaller group to hold power, and power is surrendered to that smaller group. That's the sort of uh, transition which, say, to go back to what I was saying a moment ago, Suarez thinks involves the surrender of liberty and is an analogous to the people enslaving itself. So in that sense, there is an important element of, in a very abstract way, time, and the scholastics are therefore interested in going back to the beginning. Uh, but it's important to emphasize there's nothing uh, sort of in any textured sense historical about this. They're not interested so much in seeking out the literal origins of any particular political community or indeed political communities at large. It's not a sort of uh, an enterprise in historical sociology of that kind. So they both are and aren't concentrating on the origins rather than the end product. It might be just as good alongside that to say that they're focusing on the sort of fundamental structures of political power as opposed to the particular details of how it works today. Uh, they, they're interested in finding out what legitimates a whole range of political communities rather than advising which is better or how to change any of the ones we have now. 
As to how all this relates to the state or a Cambridge focus on the state, uh, I suppose I would say that it's hard to use the term state with any discipline uh, because it can either mean something quite particular, which I think is bound up with the concept of representation, so something which somehow emerges between the people and their government when the people agree to be represented by their governors. And that's an idea which really is pioneered in a very distinctive way by Hobbes later. And so, in a sense, you could regard the state as a piece of conceptual technology which these authors don't have, uh, which on the one hand might cut them off from modern political thought. But on the other hand, of course, if we don't welcome all of the uh, developments in modern political thinking, which in a different way is something... Uh, Republican theorists certainly think, then we might find it interesting to go back to this uh, earlier, less fixed, um, in itself less sort of perfected way of thinking about politics, as we might also if we think that states in the plural, in a different sense of state, um, are less sort of sovereign with reference to each other than they used to be. So in a way, I think the point of this, and again, Annabel Brett was eloquent about this in her last book from a very different point of view, is that the scholastics sort of belong to a, a period of great sort of uh, flexibility or ambiguity before the concept of the state was fixed in its modern form, and where political thinking was much more in flux, and maybe that's what's most fruitful about them for thinking now. Uh, in a way, by trying to refocus attention on what they thought about the Commonwealth and power within the Commonwealth, I think I'm sort of going back to thinking about the state in the broader, less disciplined sense of state, uh, whereas other people have been thinking about the global community or individuals and their rights or moral philosophy as against politics. So I think it would be, it would be, too, it would be too simple to say that I'm doing some of the things the question invited me to say I might be doing. Your research highlights the fact that the central feature of the scholastic vision of Potestas is that it is abstract. Does this abstraction become a necessity for thinking about politics in the 17th century? And is it still a precondition for how we today think about political power? And if that's the case, is it still the same kind of abstraction or has this changed over time? Well power in any particular commonwealth is abstractable both on the one hand from uh, its subjects, the people, and on the other hand from the particular institutions of government that might wield it. You can talk about um, the, the potestas, say, of a community persisting over time, even though its form of government might change, and even though obviously uh, its citizens are replaced as they immigrate or emigrate or die. And in this respect, I think the scholastics are really interesting in that a lot of them and a lot of their contemporaries are really preoccupied by this question of regime change. Particularly, they invoke the, um, the case of the, of the Roman Republic and its transition to a principate to exemplify this. And they think they need to have some way of saying that Rome persisted being Rome despite that. And despite the fact that Aristotle seems awkwardly to say that when the regime or the constitution changes, you have a new polity. And they don't want to say that. So in that sense, I think thinking of the power, the potestas remaining the same, even though who, the people who happen to be holding it and the people who happen to be subject to it change, is a sense in which the scholastics do something very valuable. And some of their royalist opponents like Marco Antonio de Dominis, who was 
writing for James in the allegiance controversy, really struggle with this and end up saying every time uh, the regime changes, the community disintegrates, power reverts to God, and he then gives it again to the new king who reconstitutes the regime, which is obviously tremendously awkward and something he's reluctant to own up to his theory entailing. However, what does that mean now? I think here again, one could think of the state as the sort of artificial representative of the people as a whole, as distinct from the particular government in that Hobbesian sense, as sort of an alternative, um, more sort of influential and more normal way of thinking about that and of solving that problem. However, what I'd add to what I said just before is that there's been quite a lot of interesting work in the history of political thought about ideas of representation recently. There was a volume on popular sovereignty and historical perspective edited by Richard Burke and Quentin Skinner, and some of the essays in that on representation in 17th century England, in the American Revolution, in post-revolutionary France, uh, suggested to me at least when I read it that looked at historically, um, a lot of theories of representation are something of a mess. There are contending ones. It's not clear which of them we would uh, want to embrace. Is representation simply a matter of voluntary consent? Is it a matter of mirroring the represented? And a lot of them also, and Hobbes himself isn't exempt here, though some of the French revolutionaries like Sieza would also fall into this category, seem to demand things of us politically in terms of what the represented people would be allowed to do or how they have to be conceived in their uniformity, which we would find, be reluctant to tolerate for political reasons. So maybe representation isn't quite so robust and attractive a way of thinking about politics abstractly. Uh, and in that sense, these earlier um, and, yes, more sort of more in flux possibilities like the Scholastics one might be worth thinking about, despite the fact that they are not representative. Just one final question. Uh, what are your projects for the future? Well, uh, when I originally undertook this project on political power in the 16th, early 17th century, I had hopes that it would be possible to then chart the influence of the scholastic thought and the, the fortuna, as it were, of these debates about political power into the 17th century, up to the English Civil War, up to Hobbes, beyond that towards the Glorious Revolution, say. And there are, if you read, say, uh, Samuel Rutherford or John Maxwell or Filmer, in one sense, you can find lots of references to the scholastic, lots of reliance on their, their conceptual vocabularies. Uh, there is something that originally confounded me, though, though, which is they're quite a big break, in that after, say, 1620, a certain assumption which all of these earlier theorists, all the scholastics, all of their enemies shared which is that political power is something distinctive, something which can't be reduced to the capacities of any group or person outside or before politics, that there are things princes can do, like uh, killing people in punishment or passing laws, that can never be done by someone in a notional state of nature. That assumption uh, seems to fragment or even shatter, and it becomes a big point of political debate whether, for example, uh, families can exercise political power, whether that is that fatherly power and political power are analytically identical. And eventually it becomes possible in Grotius or in Hobbes or in Locke to actually trace the origins of political power back quite directly to the rights of individuals in a state of nature who then pool them to produce something plausibly political. And so what 
I'm now wanting to explain in my next project is how this shift came about, how this distinctive concept of the political, as it were, disappeared and was replaced by what was ultimately a more individualistic conception of the origins of politics. And my hypothesis is that the, the patriarchalist theorists figure in some way as a mediating step, in that on the one hand, the, the father in his family for them is a miniature king, exercises true political power. But on the other hand, when you think of fathers interacting with each other when their miniature commonwealths meet in, as it were, international relations, each father or head of household figures almost as an abstract individual. Uh, and this is, in fact, a staple of feminist uh, history of political thought, that the, the Hobbesian or Lockean individual is, is a head of household, a father, not just a person. And so, in a sense, the, the father figures both as a ruler with his own miniature commonwealth and therefore legitimate holder of political power, and as someone who surrenders his individual rights to a, a larger uh, political entity. And Filmer's quite candid about this. He says, well, obviously, if, if you just have fathers with their families in the world, there would be anarchy because all these tiny commonwealths would be fighting each other. So it makes sense to merge them into something bigger, which is not actually that far from what, say, Algernon Sidney in criticising Filmer says in the 1680s in what is a much more individualistic account of the origins of politics and a social contract. And in fact, both sides, curiously, and I'm still working this out, seem to sort of acknowledge this in each other and point out that they're basically saying the same thing, although this doesn't seem to them a reason to stop disagreeing. That is it for today. Thanks very much for tuning in. And as always, we'll be back soon with another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you. <laughs>